Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 30, Character of the Coalition. On December the 6th, 1915, representatives from the six Allied armies assembled on French Command headquarters at Chantilly to discuss their strategy heading into the new year. The meeting, organized and chaired by the French Commander-in-Chief, Joseph Joff, was a chance for the military leaders to come together and reorientate themselves after the debacle that was 1915. It was a good thing, too, because the previous year had left a sour taste. Western Front offensives had come to naught, Serbia had been conquered, and the Russians were badly mauled by the Central Powers campaign of that spring. Efforts to break the deadlock elsewhere, namely the Dardanelles and that ongoing embarrassment at Salonika, fueled political unrest at home. Nowhere was this more apparent than in Paris. Back in the French capital, the Union Sacré pledge in August 1914 was beginning to crack. Opposition leaders, one of the most vocal being future Premier Georges Clemenceau, argued that the current crop of generals had no idea how to win this war. The casualty lists continued to pour in, and the German army had gone nowhere. To guys like Clemenceau, the one million French dead, not to mention their mourning families back home, deserved more than half-hearted promises. Joffre was out of his element and the commander-in-chief's continued belief in spirited frontal attacks would only send countless more to their graves. When the senior officers from Great Britain, Russia, Italy, Serbia, and Belgium arrived at Chantilly, a commune 38 kilometers north of Paris, Joffre had just dodged a bullet. A change of regime in the autumn saw René Viviani replaced by Aristide Briand as premier. Despite yells to have Joffre replaced, Briand feared the political consequences of removing such a popular figure. The French public still supported Joffre, Papa, as they called him, and his status as a national hero since the Battle of the Marne had not yet faltered. Briand played the safe card, and on December the 2nd, appointed Joffre supreme allied commander, nipping any controversy surrounding the general in the bud. Joffre's position was safe for the time being. As the allied delegates arrived, each represented a nation at a different stage in the war thus far. France, with the largest army, was by default the coalition leader. Great Britain, untested but building in strength, Russia had been devastated but was slowly recovering, Italy, eager but overconfident, and Serbia, occupied but not capitulated, were more than ready to take the fight elsewhere. The Belgians were in the most difficult spot. A German ejection from France meant that fighting would inevitably return, something King Albert was keen to avoid. The Chantilly Conference was important for Joffre. Not only was this the first time that the senior officers were in the same room together, but Joffre also knew that the new year represented a threshold moment. The French commander-in-chief was eager to take the initiative back from the Central Powers, and the only way to do so was through the combined efforts of France's allies. The disjointed and separate offenses of 1915 would no longer suffice. In a memorandum presented to the assembled officers, Joffre's future strategy for 1916 was laid out in simple language. He wanted to see simultaneous combined offensives aimed at the elimination of the Austro-German armies and the liberation of France. Joffre based this strategy on mathematics. In his calculation, the armies of Germany and Austria-Hungary were at the point of exhaustion. Until this point, Joffre argued, the Allies had allowed the Central Powers too much leeway. The previous year saw little cooperation between the armies in the East and those of the West, and as a result, the Central Powers were able to engage one another separately. The time had come for the Allies to use a united front, to pool their resources. The superiority in manpower and materiel would be too much for the Germans and Austro-Hungarians to handle. In essence, Joseph Joffre was arguing for a war of attrition, aimed at grinding down the enemy. Now, the word attrition is one of those words which gets tossed around a lot in discussions about the Great War, but rarely do you hear it being applied correctly. 
The word has become a catch-all phrase, used by critics and dim-witted politicians to describe the lack of imagination of the First World War general. In context, however, attrition was nothing new in the pantheon of military history. Essentially, there are two strands to military strategy, the strategy of annihilation and that of attrition. Of the two, annihilation has always been the more desirable. The strategy of annihilation is geared towards the total destruction of an enemy army, usually in one or two decisive battles, and then peace being dictated by the victor state. We've seen examples of this throughout the podcast. During the wars of unification, the Prussians mastered this art in their conflicts with Austria and France. In 1905, Alfred von Schlieffen applied the same doctrine to his pre-war battle plan. But the latter of these, the strategy of attrition, was something much different. At this point in the Great War, late 1915, both the Central Powers and Entente had lost hope in the decisive victory. Annihilation could work when field armies numbered in the tens of thousands, but the million-man armies assembled before them made it impossible. There would always be more troops to replace the losses, and with the mobilization of entire societies, manpower and resources were available in larger quantities. At Chantilly, it was clear that the Allies could not beat the Central Powers decisively, because the conditions on the battlefield simply did not allow it. For example, the deadlock on the Western Front meant attacking armies had no choice but to assault positions head-on. The deepening trench network had stripped the ability for one army to outflank the other, so the only option commanders had was to attack directly forward. Frontal attacks, then, were not the result of uninspired leadership. They were a natural byproduct of changing battlefield conditions. Even in the East, where the absence of trenches allowed for greater mobility, Falkenhayn's campaign failed to bring Russia or Serbia to heel. Now just think about that for one moment. The Russians had been pushed back 500 kilometers and lost 2 million men, yet no peace terms were made. Serbia had been conquered by three armies, but still remained in the fight. And let's not forget Belgium, either. Brussels and Antwerp had fallen, yet King Albert did not capitulate. Historically, any of these should have been the decisive victory. But as we know, they did not bring the Central Powers any closer to weakening the Allied coalition. So while critics, and those less informed, often accuse the generals of sticking to outdated tactics, the Chantilly Conference shows us that Allied command was aware that the war was changing, and understood that the old way of doing things was just not going to crack it. The decisive victory was no longer plausible. New strategies would have to be practiced and adopted. The Germans were not going to give up through goodwill, and there was no shortcut around it. They tried that at Gallipoli, remember? The strategy of attrition has its place in history, so it was not a total leap in the dark. The most famous practitioner of it was, of course, Hannibal, who, during the Second Punic War, forced the Romans to fight on his terms and nearly broke Rome's will to fight on. A second, more comparable example of successful attrition came near the end of the Napoleonic Wars. After Napoleon's retreat from Russia, the coalition made up from nearly all of Europe used their superiority in manpower and weaponry to force Napoleon back to Paris. Although there were some close calls, it was the combined weight of his enemies which eventually overwhelmed him. In short, attrition is exactly that. The side with greater manpower and resources, and the side which husbands those resources carefully, will eventually triumph. This was Joffre's mindset as he proposed a coordinated attritional campaign for 1916. I should point out here that many have argued the belligerents had pursued attrition since the start of the war. But for our purposes, the Chantilly Conference marks the first time we see attrition emerge as a collective allied strategy. They saw the attritional struggle playing out in three distinct phases. The first phase was the build-up, the marshalling of manpower, guns, shells, and war materials at a rate unsurpassable by the enemy. The second phase was the attrition itself, the attacking and sustaining pressure on all three fronts, an Anglo-French attack in the west, Russian in the east, and Italian in the south. The key here was that these were not going to be the short offenses of 1915, but longer drawn-out battles which would last months. Losses would indeed be high, 
but at the same time would force the central powers to commit reserves they could ill afford to lose, placing an irreversible strain on their war machine. The third phase to attrition was exploitation. Once the enemy defenses were weakened, Joffre foresaw a great push, which would collapse the German line, allowing the Anglo-French armies to spill into open country and begin pushing the Germans back across the River Meuse. Each of the representatives at Chantilly agreed with the principle of Joffre's strategy. Coordinated offensives were the best plan, and a tentative date was set for March 1916, although who would be ready to fall through at that date remained to be seen. Planning the Western Front offensive began almost immediately after the Chantilly Conference adjourned on December 18th. The following day, Sir Douglas Haig officially replaced Sir John French as Commander-in-Chief of the British Army. Oh, which reminds me, I need to correct a mistake from a few weeks ago. I said that Haig was promoted to Field Marshal in January 1916, but it was not until January 1917. Sorry about that. Now to get back on track, Sir Douglas Haig inherited a position which had evolved from his humble origins in 1914. The British Expeditionary Force, which had come to France with just 100,000 men, was growing at a rate never before seen in British military history. Under the careful eye of Lord Kitchener, Britain had raised 2.5 million volunteers since the war began, and when enlistments began to trickle, Asquith's government passed the Military Service Act on January 27th, establishing conscription for all unmarried males between 18 and 41. As Kitchener's new army began to arrive in more numbers, they were further supplemented by Imperial and Commonwealth troops from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and India. The slow and steady buildup of the British Army further shows that attrition had been on the minds of Allied leaders since the very beginning. On his first day at his new digs, it was clear to Sir Douglas Haig that the agreed date of March 1916 was a bit optimistic. For one, news of the Chantilly Agreement was met with immediate pushback from London. David Lloyd George, in his role as Minister of Munitions, believed Britain would not be ready for a commitment so soon. It would take time for Britain's munitions industry to pick up steam. Workers needed to be trained, factories needed to be built and converted, and a fresh supply of raw materials needed securing to ensure armament quotas were filled. It was a big job, and Lloyd George believed it would take until the late spring for it to operate at peak capacity. There was also the question of Kitchener's army. They cannot be shipped to France all at once. New arrivals needed to be fed and mixed with veteran units in order for them to learn the ropes of trench warfare. The experiences brought on by the Battles of Luce had been a brutal lesson. Hopping in and out of training trenches behind the line was one thing. Doing it while bullets and artillery shells thundered around you was something quite different. Sir Douglas Haig, however, agreed with Joffre on the principle of attrition. But the question of where, when, and how the combined armies were going to grind down 5 million Austrian and German troops remained the elusive ghost throughout the winter. When they began to sketch out the details, it became apparent that the two sides had different ideas about the role the British army would play. Haig, through his experiences with the French under his predecessor, Sir John, had correctly suspected that the French army was substantially weaker than Joffre was leading on. Joffre could still refill his ranks, but there was no denying the pools becoming much younger and inexperienced. It was clear that Joffre was expecting the British would bear the brunt of the attritional grind, and spare the French army for the much-anticipated breakthrough, aka the British do the grunt work and the French take the glory. There was a degree of truth in this, and Haig was justified in his suspicion. Joffre wanted to see the British attack along the River Somme, while Haig believed the best option for his army was in the Ypres salient, where the inexperienced troops could be assisted by the presence of the Channel fleets. Now this is all a prelude of things to come. It would take months of tough negotiation. It would not be until the spring of 1916, when the date of July the 1st was agreed to. In the meantime, lots would happen to ensure nothing ran smoothly. Meanwhile, on the other side of the board, the Germans were working on an attritional campaign of their own. At the same time as Chantilly, Falkenhayn met with the Kaiser at his headquarters in Silesia, 
On Christmas Eve, Falconai conferred with the German emperor his plans for a nutritional campaign aimed to bleed the French army into exhaustion. His memorandum to the Kaiser reads, quote, Within our reach behind the French sector of the Western Front are objectives for the retention of which the French general staff would be compelled to throw in every man they have. If they do so, the forces of France will bleed to death, as there can be no question of a voluntary withdrawal, end quote. Now, some of you might already be aware that historians debate the authenticity of this memo, because no original copy has ever been found. In fact, the memo did not appear until Falconide's memoirs were published in 1919. This discrepancy led many to believe Falconide was using attrition as a defense for his role in the upcoming nightmare at Verdun. While many of the German sources have been lost through the Allied bombing campaigns in 1945, the Christmas Memorandum fits in with Falkenhayn's larger strategy, which he had laid out earlier in the war. When Falkenhayn replaced Moltke the Younger, his appointment marked a clear break to what most elder commanders were used to. Falkenhayn, who was just 55 years of age, had brought with him a difference of opinion which not adhered him to the more conservative generals. You'll recall his bitter infighting with Hindenburg and Ludendorff, which we discussed back in episode 22. As we saw earlier, Germany had built its military prestige through the wars of annihilation and the decisive victory, the victory at Kuningratz over the Austrians in 1866, and Sedan against the French in 1870, had paved the way for the modern German state. The Schlieffen Plan was seen as a continuation of this tradition, so the belief in the decisive victory remained firm up until the eve of the war. However, when the Schlieffen Plan failed, Falkenhayn shared no illusions about Germany's chances. As early as November 1914, he informed Holwig that as long as Russia, France, and England held together, it would be impossible for Germany to defeat them. Germany's only option was to pry the Entente apart, by focusing its resources against them independently. In 1915, Russia was the target, and although they had not come to terms, Falkenheim believed the job was done. In 1916, however, it would be France's turn. Now I admit, in times past, I fell into the trap of seeing Falkenheim as some diabolical figure. He was the guy who unleashed Verdun to make up for his own lack of understanding. While he certainly had his faults, we'll get more into that next week when we start discussing his plans for Verdun, his logic for an attritional campaign was strategically sound. As Norman Stone writes, Falkenhayn was a modern general, and he had a more sensible view of the war than Ludendorff or Conrad. He knew that great maneuvers as in past wars could not fit the present circumstances. As a tactician, Falkenhayn understood the numbers. Intelligence reports estimated the French army to be numbered at 3 million troops, with an additional 500,000 in reserve. This number was nearly 400,000 less than in August 1914, indicating that France's military strength had reached its peak. Until this point, the French had suffered a sobering 70,000 casualties per month. Falkenheim believed that as Joffre continued at this current rate, France would be facing a manpower crisis by September 1916. But the process could be sped up if Germany forced the French to commit. Factoring into this as well was the outlook of Germany's key allies, Austria-Hungary and Ottoman Turkey. Falkenhayn was pessimistic about their chances, and told Kaiser Wilhelm that both would be exhausted by the autumn of 1916. However, Austria-Hungary was proving itself more resilient than the Germans predicted. Through conscription and the remobilization of veterans, the Austro-Hungarian army had beefed up to 2.3 million, 900,000 of which were combat-ready. Although rarely agreeing on anything else, Falkenhayn and Conrad concurred, that the war had to end by 1917 at the very latest, because this would be Austria's last kick at the can. Conrad was eager to prove that Austria-Hungary could still fight without German assistance, and the quick conquest of Montenegro seemed to prove this. Conrad also knew that the home front was becoming fragile. The aging emperor, Franz Joseph, was in ill health, and the war had cost the dual monarchy 3.2 million men thus far. But crucially, 
Conrad believed the situation in the Balkans was back in his favor. The Russians had been pushed back, and the threat from Serbia removed, allowing him to free up his forces and turn them against the Italians. In January 1916, Conrad received word from Vienna that the dual monarchy was recommitted to the cause, and that a knockout blow against the Italians in Tyrol should be the focus of the 1916 campaign. However, Conrad would have to go it alone, as Falkenhayn had no intention of sending aid to his ally. This is key, because as the Allies were working closer together, the Central Powers were proving themselves to be anything but centralized. Okay, I'm going to leave it there for this week. This episode is a bit shorter than usual, but you probably noticed I've been a bit stingy on getting the episodes up on time. I'm trying to get back on track, so excuse the quick turnaround. Next week, however, we're going to pick up where we left off today and continue talking about Falkenhayn's strategy for 1916. So if the stuff we covered today seems a bit unfinished, don't worry, we're coming back to it. When we meet again on Monday the 18th, we're going to jump right back into things by covering the details of Falkenhayn's attrition, and why on February the 21st, 1916, the war forever changed at the fortress of Verdun. Verdun was a harbinger of things to come, and threw everything we talked about today completely out the window. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Questions, comments, and suggestions are always more than welcome. I'd like to give a shout out to listener Tim from Portland, who recently donated to the show. Thank you very much, Tim. For those of you wanting to help out the Great War Podcast, you'll find a donate button on the homepage. Or write us a review on iTunes, which will help keep us afloat in the rankings and force me to remain chained to my laptop, turning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.